Welcome to the Take A Seat Podcast. This podcast brings awareness to disability sports and supports. We are talking to experts and athletes with a disability from around the world. Before we get stuck into this episode, we want to say a massive thank you to our sponsor, the Suncoast Spinners. The Suncoast Spinners are a social wheelchair-based sporting club. They operate multiple programs for people of all ages and abilities in basketball, rugby, and more. Follow Suncoast Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, and find out more about them at suncoastspinners.com.au. Welcome back to episode six. Episode six, James. We've gone one, two, three, four, five. Episode six. Mate, you're almost going to have to take your shoes off to start counting more numbers, mate. Uh, mate, if we get to that point, I will definitely need to take my shoes off. I, I cannot count past twenty. That's that's a guarantee. <laughs> I'm I'm starting to run out of things to say, mate. I'm. It, you just keep outdoing yourself with these guests. Who have we got on for this episode? Oh <laughs> well, James, I've uh, I've gone international. We're going overseas. We're going overseas. Are we? Are we going overseas? We're going overseas. So we got a ticket. Oh, well, we don't need a ticket with this thing. We're, oh. we're, we're good here. The podcast can go overseas without us going overseas. Oh, getting me excited, mate. Who, who is it? We have Kimberly Alkermaid. She is from the Netherlands and she is a below-knee amputee. Uh, has recently won a bronze medal at the Tokyo Paralympics. She's a huge advocate and I'm happy to introduce it to you. Excellent. Well, Kimberly, welcome to the Take a Seat Project. We, uh, we invite you to take a seat. Thank you very much. Thank you. Give, a, give us a bit of a bio about yourself and, and what you'd like to share. That, that'd be sensational, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, my name is uh, Kimberly Alkemade and I'm a Paralympic sprinter on the 100 and 200 meter. And um, uh, I started quite late. Uh, like uh, I started full time in 2018. Um, and I uh, won a bronze medal at the Paralympic Games in Tokyo. And in 2019, on the World Championships in Dubai, I won silver on the 200 and bronze on the 100 meter. So it went quite fast. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. So when, when did you say you started running? Well, in 2017, I got uh, scouted on the Paralympic Talent Day. Uh, and I was not actually planning to become a performance athlete when I went to that Talent Day because I only wanted some more information about what is possible if you have a prosthetic, what kind of sports can you do. Uh, you, I wanted to talk with people who have same experiences or who know the people who also run with uh, prosthetics or uh, sport with, uh, with prosthetics. Yeah, and um, so I was not actually planning to become a performance athlete when I went there, but still, although I got a letter in my hand at that day, 15 October 2017, that I'm um, uh, for sure uh, will be selected for the national team of para-athletics. And uh, yeah, I actually, um, uh, yeah, like I said, I didn't have a sporty background. I was not growing up with sports. What was the thing that prevented you from starting earlier or, you know, being involved in sport uh, before the age of 27? Was there anything in particular? Well, I was developing myself and I was working in healthcare and I thought that I could help people uh, because I also lost my leg. So um, I thought I could help people better if I have same kind of uh, experiences with having a disability. 
but then I found out that um, that I wanted to be more active and um, more uh, involving in sport. And like, yeah, I, I, I could not accept that um, that I got a daily leg and that, that that's what I can do. And like the government says to me that, okay, you have a leg, so, and you can walk in, in your house, you can do your cleaning in the house and you can go to work. And if that's uh, okay, that's enough. And I was not accepting that because I was like, okay, I'm now like 27. If I want to make something of my life, I really need to get fit and healthy. And um, before that, I was more like partying and studying and yeah, living the, the free and happy life. But I was yeah not doing the healthy stuff. So yeah, there was a time it actually came at that point. Maybe it's quite late, but it came at that point. Like I said, okay. I'm now going to make healthy choices and do things that are good for my body. Uh, so I needed a blade for that. So I was searching for a, a prosthesis uh, which can, could help me to uh, provide me to just do more in sports. And yeah, he gave me the secondhand blade and that's where it started. And sorry, just for uh, the context of any of any listeners, are you able to describe um, or, or tell us a bit of in, in as much detail as you'd like either the the incident or the injury uh, as to upper lower limb up sorry upper lower knee um, just sort of describing the, the injury that you've you've got yeah I have um, a lower uh, knee yeah, I'm amputated at my at the mid of my lower knee so a below they call it a below knee amputee and um, yeah, I got I lost my leg when I was eight years old, and that came because of a bus accident. When you first started running, it was it was a secondhand uh, blade, is that correct? And then now, yeah. is that is it the same blade, or have you now received a, a bit more support in that area as well? Yeah, it actually developed. Um, and on that blade, I uh, won the bronze and the silver on the world championships in Dubai, but. Because I was developing, I was also searching for a, a blade who fits my uh, running. So I was searching for that because like shoes, which you have Adidas, Nike, and you also have different blades from different companies. So I was uh, testing those. And then I found a blade from Japan, uh, Cyborg, which I actually am the first uh, medalist uh, in the world. Uh, which has won a medal on that Japanese blade. You've said a few times now of getting getting women and, and getting people more fit and active and and, and healthy. You've you've started a um is it a company called is it moving moving for growth. Yeah, I did a boot camp for kids training. So I gave boot camps for children, and I gave small group training uh, to uh, adults. Uh, after my sports career, I definitely want to do more with that because um, I'm interested in um, getting people healthy and just getting people to move. One thing that you, as James said, you have said quite a few times is you want to inspire and get people to move and uh, exercise more. Is there anything in particular that you're currently doing, you know, social media, are you getting young boys or girls, you know, is it is it sort of a social media platform or do you actually invite people to come and train with you to potentially become athletes themselves yeah well that's that's uh, an idea i like to start 
in the future, like quite soon. Um, I'm actually um, already thinking about how to arrange this. But for example, I also chose to train in an athletics club close to my home and not at the Dutch Federation uh, at Papenal, where Daphne Schippers also trained, you know, in that, that uh, building. I actually uh, want to see children, uh, adults, uh, with older people, uh, just people from daily life who come to the athletics club to train. I want them to see me train. So I want that they see that, okay, even though you lost a leg, you can run. Yeah. And when those people see me, they talk with each other and then uh, children also see me and they see that, okay, even though something like that will happen to me, then I can see that I can still run. And if I don't see those people and the, and people don't see me, then it's very difficult to to organize something like that. So yeah, most certainly. That's why I choose to, to be uh, yeah close to home and getting more involved with people from uh, from daily life. It's a similar aspect as to what Dylan Alcott sort of what he's pushing for. He's wanting to sort of mainstream the idea of of uh, positive role models of those with disabilities and his his comments and uh, sort of he's done a few TED talks and he goes on to the fact that, you know, any, uh, the, the character from the X-Men in the wheelchair, Dr. Savior, yep. he's never been played by someone in a wheelchair, but he is uh, like gl- globally known, right? But why have we never, why has no producer ever had someone in a wheelchair play that character? And then he sort of, he talks about the the idea on billboards when you see, particularly in Australia, uh, and they're referencing speeding and, and what, eventuates of speeding is that you might end up in a wheelchair suggesting that this is a negative impact on your life and dylan's sort of come on that is that uh, well you know being in a wheelchair is, is not a negative thing at all you know so why are we putting that in the face of this negative uh, annotation and yeah uh, i think true. it's yeah it's to be yeah. you, like you said you know if they don't see if they don't see you and you're not if sort of like yeah if you're not out there running in front of them they'll never see you and they'll never get this perception that Oh, if this ever happens to me, or if this happens to anyone, they can actually still run. Um, and I, I, I really applaud you on on that. You know, like wanting to get out there and make a positive uh, change to people's perceptions of of injuries and disabilities as a whole. We also have uh, yeah. we had Daniel Michelle um, on as well, and he's a bronze medalist from Tokyo as well, from Australia here in Bocha. And he said, growing up, he didn't see people with disabilities out and about. And it wasn't seen as something to do in the in the sporting avenue to be with a severe disability out there. So he wanted to be seen by more people. He actually wanted to be um, readily available for people to come and ask him questions and, and be around there. Your uh, injury has come from a traumatic bus accident. And that one of the things that you have said uh, previously is you were hiding your limb in particular when you were younger and you didn't get involved in sport. But once you got your blade, that in that process of um, modifying it and getting it more adapted to yourself, you had to show your blade off and that made you feel more comfortable with moving around and people seeing it. So then it becomes second nature to you where you, where you weren't hiding it. Uh, do you want to give a bit more yeah. insight to how you – uh, developed in those type of emotions and thought processes for us? 
think a lot of people who love Lynn uh, are dealing with those feelings because it's actually a process of um, that you love something. And um, what I did, I was I wanted to be as normal as possible. So like every person study and uh, go to school and uh, go to a sport. It's not that I did not any do, do not, I didn't do any sports. I did. I tried several sports, but only what I uh, felt is during trying trying those sports is that my prosthetic that I had was actually not supporting me enough to do what I really want and to be as active what I really wanted. So uh, and because. People said to me, yeah, um, the insurance doesn't cover it. You you get in some kind of ma- mental state where you think, okay, well, just uh, it is what it is. Just uh, deal with it and just roll with uh, what you have. And then there gets a point, with me it came when I was 27, where you think, I'm not accepting this anymore. I'm, I, I just want more. This is not enough for me. And, and when you get in that state of mind, then things are coming your way and things will working for you because you're searching, researching, and calling with people, speaking with people. Um, and that's also a process of acceptance of your own uh, disability. Absolutely, yeah. Did you find having a disability at a young age you were able to accept a little bit easier than uh, kind of maybe later in life having having a disability? Or did you find that you still had to um, go through that learning and growing process as a child and you didn't accept until later? How did you feel about your actual acceptance of your disability? Yeah, I'm actually, I think I, think I was not seeing myself as disabled. I think I never saw myself as disabled. Only the prosthetic didn't provide me to do the things I wanted. And, and I was accepting that. For example, at the bus accident, I also lost my mother. So I think the, the impact it had at my life for growing as an adult woman is actually huge because you grow up losing your mother, but also at the same time losing your legs. And of course, I, yeah, I uh, tried uh, several things and I never saw myself as disabled. Um, but of course, there were situations and times. But also when I like was a teenager, that's quite an, an, a period of your life where you're more insecure. That, that's those times when you get to think more about you and then think, oh, I'm, I'm really different and I don't want to be different. But actually, when I was 27, I realized that, yeah, but I'm not normal. I am not normal. And that is okay. Who is normal? And what is normal? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's the big question, isn't it? I was going to actually ask on that. Losing your mother in the same accident that you lost your leg and you say that you never saw yourself as disabled. That's a big process to go down. Like one, losing your mom is really, really hard but then also losing a limb. How did you process, because I have read that you, you had to go to your mother's funeral while still 
processing that you'd lost a leg and that your dad and uh, two brothers had minor injuries. And how was that for yourself? Yeah, like uh, really traumatic and uh, and sad. Yeah, I can imagine. I yeah. think uh, family uh, helped me to get through this. So my father and my brothers, but also my aunt and my uncle, like family uh, helped us to get through this. So there was a big family support for y- yourself and, and your fellow f- uh, family members to get through that whole traumatic event. Y- you found a lot of support from, from family? Yeah, a lot of support. Family where I got a very strong emotional uh, bond with, like my father and my brother and my aunt and my uncle and um very, very strong, uh, strong connection. And, and you were saying that you weren't too sporty prior to the the, the incident, but uh, now that you are running, are you are your brothers sporty at all? Do you, do you play sport with your brothers and your father? Do you, do you run it all together? Well, um, my brother uh, is a physiotherapist, and uh, he started his own practice, and he he wanted to uh, challenge me. On a hundred meter, and he lost. <laughs> yeah, he lost. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. even better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he didn't like it <laughs> that he lost from his sister. He, he was not liking it. <laughs> when when do brothers ever like losing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I have seen is that well, you've seen and said that you're doing psychology at university. Your coach is very, very big into psychology and the mental state of running. Uh, has that influenced you on now doing a degree in psychology? The reason uh, I want to study that is not because of the coach, but because I experienced that doing sport is also very mental. And uh, especially when you have to perform at uh, such a big event as at the Paralympic Games. And um, I'm very interested in the mind and uh, also after my sports career, helping people to be the, in the mental best state they ever can be. My coach was Keith Antron from Great Britain, but he actually only could coach me from a distance. And after uh, Tokyo, I realized that that is, I think I learned a lot from him to be in the moment and to stay in the moment. But uh, coaching on that level, from, from a distance where he lives in Great Britain and where I live in the Netherlands, I realized that it's not working for me. So I now have a, a Dutch coach at my athletics club near home, uh, where I actually feel very uh, close and bonded with. And I'm in, the, in a group with other athletes who some of the girls uh, run faster than me. Uh, so it's for me, uh, important to sport in a group uh, where I can, yeah, develop myself, but also uh, learn from other athletes. That's a really sort of powerful uh, environment to be in, where you can learn from from others uh, that are that are uh, sort of, I guess, be- better than yourself. It might be a word to say, it. but then also being able yeah. to pass on your experience to the younger generations, the y- and the and the perhaps the up and coming athletes. Uh, we both b- play wheelchair rugby league. And so the, the equipment that we use there is, is a wheelchair in a sense, a sports chair. And we may go through a wheelchair, maybe, I mean, I haven't gone through one in like five years, but um, I was lucky enough to receive a, a new one uh, that was sponsored to me by the Sunco Spinners. And I, w- I then passed my previous chair on to the club 
and they then pass that on to another member. Is that something that you would do with your blades or are they simply, as you were saying before, where they just sort of get to the point where they're of no value or perhaps, uh, I don't want to say used by, but like a beyond their use by date, I guess. <laughs> no, I hand it over to someone, uh, yeah, who can ha- be happy with it because I know the blades are quite expensive and if someone else can use it, uh, can be happy with that, then uh, I'm also happy. So because, yeah, otherwise it's just in my closet and I'm not using it. So and of I, and course I, I like to yeah, so I, yeah, I, I guess you're passing on with that. So I guess you're passing on more than just the blade, like you're passing on also the the joy that you had in found, uh, found uh, sorry, the joy that you found in running, uh, allowing you to do the things that the previous blade or the preset, uh, previous prosthetic was stopping you from doing. Excellent. One thing that I do want to ask, and it's from my experience being an exercise physiologist working with clients that have sockets and uh, prosthesis themselves, that is there anything that you need to be fearful or cautious of is probably a better word in the sense of pressure sores or rubbing or blisters or over sweating in the in the actual socket itself that's going to cause damage where you have to be off your prosthesis for a long period of time or unable to train is there anything in training that you have to really okay i I need to be cautious of that well yes like the prosthetist who is making your socket is very important and it's very important that the fit of your socket is quite perfect. So uh, when you go into a process of making a socket, they fir- always first start with a trial. And my advice is take a few months to walk a sport on that trial. So when you feel there's, there's something coming up, like a blister or a spot or anything, then the prosthesis can change the socket quite easily. And in that process of months, then during those, at the end of those process, you get in a state where you don't get spots or blisters anymore. Like maybe a few, but very little. And when you're in that state, then you're going to a, a final socket. And Excellent. that's my greatest advice for, <laughs> uh, but also for, what you said, uh, when you're doing sport, you have to dry your stump several times uh, with a towel. That's also my advice to sometimes put those prosthetic off and dry. And some athletes need to, de- need to do that more often than other athletes. But even though if you feel like, okay, I need to just dry again, even though it's maybe a little bit a lot for other people, don't think about that. Just do what you think, okay, this, I need this right now, so I just do it. Uh, just dry your uh, leg and, and then put the prosthetic on again and then you can go further. Um, because otherwise, uh, you can also get irritations and spots if you don't do it. That's a, that's a great piece of advice, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, younger athletes in particular will, will take that advice on board um, because, as you said, it's you. If you don't look after yourself, no matter what anyone else is thinking or other people are doing, if you don't look after yourself, you can't run. You can't do the the sport that you need to. So irrespective of if anyone's looking at you or thinking that, oh no, you're just taking it easy. And that's probably a bit of advice for coaches out there that 
you know, if you're an athlete and you do have a, a prosthetic athlete, take that into consideration that they aren't just taking the mickey or taking the easy route out. They're actually looking after their body and their health, that they do need to wipe down that that limb quite a bit, um, that they do need to make sure that there's no sores or anything on there and and really look after themselves before pushing too hard in, in that avenue as well. The Take a Seat podcast is in your ears thanks to the Suncoast Spinners. The Suncoast Spinners are a wheelchair-based sporting club. They run social inclusion programs, including but not limited to basketball and rugby. If you want to get involved with the Suncoast Spinners programs, you can just rock up at Mergen, Morayfield and Sippy Downs on Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays or contact them on Instagram, Facebook or their website www.suncoastspinners.com.au. The Suncoast Spinners programs are for people of all ages and abilities. They're looking for players, officials and volunteers to help with all of their programs. So make sure you check out the Suncoast Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, or on their website again, www.suncoastspinners.com.au. We're now going to take a bit of a sidestep into what we call the hard cards. And what we do here is there are questions that have come from the internet, from our viewers, our listeners, as well as ourselves. And they're questions that you just wouldn't come up to yourself and be like, all right, I want to ask this question. I don't know how to do it. And you kind of, by putting them on these cards, you get to select it. You can answer all three questions or you can answer just one of them or none. It depends on how you feel with the question themselves. We do have them on the back of a set of playing cards. Like Cam to pick out three. He can't see them. He doesn't know what's underneath them. Because <laughs> well, if uh, you... If, if, three. A three? Yeah, three. Yeah. We got a three of diamonds here. Would you like that one? Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So yeah, uh, you want to give me two more playing cards from the fanned out deck that James has and uh, just randomly say them I and I'll say if they're there or not. Uh, six. A six. Six of clubs? Yeah. Perfect. And uh, one more for me. Uh, four. Four of diamonds. Yeah. Excellent. All righty. So we have three questions here. I'll read all three questions out first and then answer them as you, as you please. You can answer the first one last or however you would like, but I'll read all three questions for you. So first question. Describe the most humiliating thing you've experienced. Second question, what misconceptions make you want to scream, that's not me? And the third question is, were you scared of people leaving you? Yeah, I think the second one, the misconception. Yeah. Like there was someone who said to me that I have difficulty with changes. Yeah. Like um, changes uh, being. Changes in your life. But. Um, I actually think that's a misconception because um, I'm actually searching for change yeah. and I changed a lot. Yeah. And if I look at me from 2017 till where I am now, I think I can yeah, tell uh, maybe well a hundred changes in how I develop physically, but also mentally, but also the people I've met because I also... I also have been coached by different coaches because I was also searching for for a, a group of athletics and a coach who is fitting me, which that connection and that bond and that trust is there. So, yeah, if people say that I find it difficult to, to uh, experience changes in life, then I'm like, no, that's not me. Yeah, good. Because uh, when... When you said that uh, people say that you don't like change and that you're searching for change, my exact question was going to be, what's, what change are you searching for? And, and you answered it really well that you're, 
searching for that environment of coaches and fellow uh, athletes that, you know, are going to strive and push you better. Um, but you're also striving to change the environment that you're in. And, and by the conversation we've already had, you're trying to change perceptions of people with missing limbs and uh, handing over blades and also changing people's mindsets of they can exercise and they can get out and they can be moving. You've, you've said quite a few things today about change. Um, it's very, yeah. very yeah. obvious that you are searching for change and making changes happen. So, and also, yeah, I'm not scared of change. I'm also not scared of it. I'm actually searching for it. So maybe the one who said that to me is maybe scared for change. Go for final question, I think it was, which was, uh, were you scared of people leaving you? And I'll, I'll pose that in the sense of um, let's go when you got into the para-athletic scene. So uh, 2017. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you've, when you've opted to leave work, uh, you, you found a, uh, your partner in crime that was able to support you financially and you've opted to, to follow this pathway, this career into para-athletics. At that point in time, were you scared of anyone leaving you because of that decision? I think I have had my moments. Sometimes, yeah. I, I love some friends, actually. But if I really was scared for it, I think not not that much. I think I had my moments sometimes that I was thinking, ooh, it's really different, the, the life I'm choosing here. And also, like, when I look around, um, uh, family members are getting children and uh, are uh, more in that space of, uh, of life. And I'm making other choices. And sometimes what I experience is that people don't really understand it. But then I think maybe when I win that gold medal in Paris, (laughs) then maybe then they will understand. Uh, I think um, what I found out is uh, the change I uh, choose to to train close to home uh, with a group of athletes around me. So I also making new friends with people who do athletics absolutely, uh, and understand the level of performance and what, what you have to do for it. But what I noticed is because it's now close to home, I can see my friends uh, and my family a little bit more often than when I was training at the uh, Dutch Federation. So I think even though you are a performance athlete, it's also very important that you stay enjoying life and uh, not be too strict on yourself because otherwise the, the happiness of your well-being goes down. And I think it's important that you stay happy as a human and also doing those things that makes you happy as a human. And stopping doing those things will not help you perform better. Absolutely. Yeah. Sort of when you take anything too seriously, it takes the joy out of it. Most definitely. Yeah. On on that though, um, something that James did just say as well as yourself, what is the regime that you kind of are currently going through pre-Tokyo, but now leading into Paris? How, How frequently are you training? Is it once a day, twice a day, three times a day? Like, what is your workload to be a professional athlete at that level? What is it? Uh, I train uh, nine times a week. So I have uh, four uh, running sessions, two power sessions, uh, two circuits, 
and one training where I have to do some yoga and some stretching of the whole body. So that's nine times a week. So there are two days where I train two times on a day and the rest of the day is uh, one time and uh, Saturday I'm free. Saturdays are free. Saturdays, Saturdays free day. is a free day. Yeah, that's a great day. It's funny when you first said nine, I'm like, yeah. wait, there's only seven days in the week. <laughs> we'll finish off the last question here. We're seeing as we've got all three. Describe the most humiliating thing you've experienced. Feel free not to answer it. I think I know I have something. Well, what happened um, before I went to the heat for the 200 meter, I uh, forgot my uh, start number. And yeah. without your start number, you, you can't get into the call room. Yeah. Ah. So I was already, we already take the bus to Tokyo uh, to the uh, warm, warm up track. And the host, the, our uh, place, the Olympic Village, is a little bit further away. So yeah. it was not easy. Yeah, it was like very uh, stressful. Um, but, uh, uh, the coach who was there could arrange quite fast that it was still coming to me, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> there are a few short was, moments uh, you thought you weren't going to run. Yeah, I was really thinking, well, this is my 200. Uh, it's, it's gone now. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was really thinking that. And that was one you got the bronze medal in, so that would have been, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that extra bit of blood pumping around the body got you running a bit quicker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they fixed it and, but, Really, like, I think one second before I went into the call room, someone came with that uh, start oh, number. Wow. One, one second. Right when you needed second. it. That's, that, uh, I was watching yeah. um, during the Paralympics, there was actually a Jamaican runner. That happened or something happened where he, he got on the wrong bus from the village yeah. to the track <laughs> and uh, ended up that <laughs> he had no money because he was going to run. And one of the ladies who was a volunteer there actually paid for a taxi and a phone call and a few other things to get him to to the event. And once he'd run the, he actually got a gold medal with the Jamaican running side. And he went back the next day and found that volunteer and showed her the gold medal that he'd won to be like, look at what you did for me. And then give her his running number and I think a, a, a singlet that was signed by him and a few other pieces of uh, uh, memorabilia, like as a yeah. thank you so much because without you, I wouldn't have got there. That was yeah. physically yeah. physically would not have got to the, the event. So yeah. very, very yeah. similar story yourself that, you know, if someone hadn't helped out and got that number there, you, you wouldn't have a bronze medal. Um, yeah. Like, wow, just that, that. And that's the movement of the Paralympics yeah. is – but I think that those things happen because people are nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Right, certainly, yes. yeah. You're a lot, a lot on They're your mind. So, so nervous. <laughs> a lot of your mind, and then, like, like I, the, the day before, I was checking my bag, and I really was sure that I had everything. But still, it can happen. So, <laughs> yeah. What, what was it in comparison to your first international event? Well, if you are asking me, uh, I really have to be honest with you, but uh, Tokyo, the Paralympic Games in Tokyo were, were quite tough because uh, my, my personal coach was not there uh, with me. So even though it was my first Paralympic Games, there were also no audience 
And actually, my dream is to perform at Paralympic Games when you know your friends and family are all in the stage and uh, there are people uh, watching. That feeling and dream was, was not there in Tokyo. Uh, there, it was very, it felt a bit like a prison. Perhaps a actually. bit underwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, because we, we had to stay in that Olympic village. Everywhere where we went, we had to wear masks. Everywhere we had to keep that distance. It was, we had to stay in the bubble. So I, I only spoke to the people who were in my apartment. And outside of that, you had to be very careful. And it, it was not my Paralympic Games where I dreamed of. And if I compare it to the World Championships in Dubai, where there were audience, and I knew my father and my brother came over to Dubai to, to watch me perform, even though it, it were not much audience, but even though the feeling of knowing that your family and friends are there and they are watching you, that that's where I get energy from and where, that's where I get motivated from. So mentally, the Paralympic Games in Tokyo were the toughest uh, I've ever experienced in my whole life, mm. really. It was really tough. Do you think that that had a, an influence on your performance while you're there as well? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because if I look at who I am and um, what my dream is, I, I was standing there and didn't felt like, okay, this is where I dream of. Even though it was a very big stadium, and but the, the whole experience around it, it was not uh, it was not my dream because of all the restrictions and I felt very like yeah a little bit close and I, I sprint because I want to be free and uh, if all those restrictions are on it then I don't feel free mm. something that uh, it, it was like your your goal you wrote it in your Paralympic goals and all that that you want to uh, run at Tokyo, has that now shifted to Paris to try and get that experience? Yeah, that's my dream. <laughs> now, yeah. I, I, I word this in a way that it's something that I personally would love to see and why James and I, I think we've started this whole project and what we're aiming for is our personal mission would be to bring a light to the Paralympics in particular, but adaptive and, and disability sport in particular. We've talked about this before. We would love to see the Olympics and Paralympics run at the exact same time. So not two separate events, but actually the one event. And where, you know, for example, your event is run as the 100 meters and then three races later is the men's 100 meter final. And you've got the crowd in there. You've got the same lights, the same volume. It's just that big, big atmosphere. Is that something that, you know, would be change your mentality and how you would feel you'd be like really amped up and ready to go for that yeah absolutely absolutely that that will be amazing if if we talk about in, inclusivity like being inclusive and uh, inspiring uh, the world that will be amazing and huge that will be very huge um, like even though I, I, I understand because I'm different, because I run with a blade. I understand that I have to run against other people who have blades. But what I don't understand, why it can be at the same event. 
That's yeah. what I don't understand. We're, how far off do you think we are as a society to having, and now that you've experienced the Paralympics, um, that the two games could be combined together? Do you think there's one particular thing that could, could change and, and all of a sudden Olympics and Paralympics are together? Uh, like in the, uh, like, for example, uh, like uh, long jumpers with a blade jump with uh, long jumpers with no blade. Yeah, yeah. So it, even if it's uh, no blade jumpers uh, jump at 10 o'clock today and then blade jumpers jump at 11 o'clock today and it's in the same uh, actual event, the same time frame, you know, it might run from July 1st through to July 31st as opposed to uh, the Olympics is July 1st to July 14th and then the Paralympics is July 15th through to the July 30th. They're actually the same yeah. time frame. Yeah. Well, I think it's good that it is in the same event, that it's not separate, but then there still has to be a, a long jump for the blades and a long jump for uh, the Olympics top performance level because yeah, even though... Some of the athletes with blades, and you see it mostly with men who are running with blades, um, they are quite far in speed. But if you compare those world records to, for example, the Olympics, then they're close to the fastest women and not close to the fastest men. So even though you would combine that, there will still be a difference. And I think that technology is not that far that uh, there is no difference. So uh, I think running with a blade is another, has to be another event, but it can be in the same uh, Olympics. So it doesn't have to be separate. But if you like having a 100 meter for women at, at the Olympics and after that, a 100 meter for the Paralympics, yeah. That, that, yeah, why not? That's exactly our question. Why not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why can this not happen? Like, what do we got to do to make that happen? Um, yeah. And that's why we, as we said, started the project. We started this mission to, you know, let's bring awareness to the sports and let's let's get that why not to let's do it. Let's let's make it happen. And that is our whole mission. And not just from the Australian perspective, but uh, Netherlands with talking to yourself and and uh, we've got a couple of athletes from uh, Great Britain and we've got a couple of uh, Americans coming on in the future. So, you know, we're, we're trying to get perspectives from everybody across the entire world and change that why not to, well, there's yeah. no why not. Let's but just for, do it. Yeah. But for example, the, the Dutch uh, championship, which is not a, a big event compared to the Olympics, or the, the, the Paralympics. Uh, like if I want to do a 60 meter indoor with able body athletes from the Dutch national uh, top, yeah, why not? Because I, I would not make the final because they running faster than me, but I can run a heat with them and I, I won't bother anyone with that. And that's the discussion which is now also going on because Fleur Young with the double blade, which is also doing uh, sport for the Dutch uh, national team, and she does long, long jump, and she arranged that she just doing long jump together with other able-bodied athletes from the from the Dutch national team. But she uh, 
she was had to fight for it with a lawyer to arrange that. And uh, she was participating there in the long jump, but she was um, uh, came she came out as uh, an outsider. So she she was there for a, a demo. She was not there to perform with other athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and against each other, she was just there to show, okay, I'm a long jumper with two blades, and I want to show you that I can jump. And I want to uh, show the people in the Netherlands that we can just do do it together. Maybe not. They, she she doesn't want to pick uh, or pick the medals from other athletes like uh, that's not the case but just being visible yes uh, and not necessarily people what you can do not not in that competitive atmosphere but most certainly in the in the social like socially if we we enjoy doing long jump or pole vault or sprinting we can most certainly all do that together uh it's it's I, i i get your your point there it gets dicey when it gets to that competitive and uh, elite athlete status um but most certainly socially, we can all do anything and everything together. Well, even the, as you said, um, Blade Runners, everyone run in the heats together and then take classifications out. You know, they do that with the swimming in particular, where there's different yes. classifications within swimming. Um, at the Paralympics in particular, that they may have six different classifications and only six swimmers in, in the race. But they, rather than, you know, one person swimming by themselves and then another person swimming by themselves. They put the six different classifications in the lanes beside each other, race that race, and then they take their individual time and compare it against their classification uh, world record or Paralympic record. We could quite easily do the same sort of thing in Usain Bolt versus uh, a double blade runner versus a single blade runner and – um, Usain Bolt being in lane four and then the double blade in lane five and single in lane six, it's going to make those runners better. But then at the same time, I know in the back of and not being derogatory or anything to anybody in the back of my mind, I'd be turning around going, I, I don't want to lose to a guy with two blades. Like, eh, and that's not me trying to be rude. That's just as an abled athlete, you'd be like, I'm going to beat everybody in this rate. It's irrespective of what's going on because um, you don't want to be seen as I'm as a top athlete losing to anyone. Yeah, yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, and in that way, um, uh, Paralympic sport uh, gets people will see uh, the sport then more as performance sport and top performance sport, and not as an uh, an outsider. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd, that you'd like to, to let us know? So the future, the future looks bright only this year because of the postponement. Um, I took some time to, uh, to free my mind. So I walked the Camino. So oh, wow. I walked uh, 20, 125 kilometers in six days uh, because I wanted to challenge myself uh, in another way because there is no tournament. And, uh, uh, and they said you were afraid of change. I mean, <laughs> I challenged myself. I challenged myself, maybe walk to the fridge or something each day, but 126. Wow. Like that's a challenge. Yeah. Wow. That's a 125 K. So how many yeah. days? Sorry. Six. Six. So Six. 20, 20 uh, kilometers a day. 
She is. That's an F and, and, and a half. It was, and it was not flat. I can tell you, it yeah. was not flat. <laughs> Sorry, it was the the Camino. Yeah, the Camino from uh, uh, Portugal to Spain. So from uh, Valencia Domino in Portugal to Santiago de Compostela in Spain. My golly, gumdrops, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. That's a, that sounds like an epic hike. I'd, I'd be keen to give out a crack. Maybe not six days, but I don't know about that. that sounds a bit quick. <laughs> You've actually got here, and I, I've written it down because I really like this. Your quote that you live by, and this conversation here has wanted me to ask this, but your quote that I found that you live by is, fear is a compass pointing you in the areas where you need to grow. Is that something that you still that is still your favorite quote? And is that something that, you know, made that mission a little bit harder that, or that uh, challenge a little bit easier? Or did you use that quote to get yourself through? Yes. Actually, um, um, if you're scared of something um, or you feel insecure about something, then I'm actually saying, okay, go to that uh, where, where you are scared of and go to that uh, where you're insecure about. What is it? And it's not that scared at all. Or the insecurity that you have, it's not actually helping you or, yeah. We are really, really appreciative of your time. Uh, you've you've given us some really good conversations, you know. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll take a lot out. You know, the, the, the last uh, comment you just made there about... Um, I guess it sort of relates back to exposure therapy, you know, going to those areas that you are uncomfortable in and, and making yourself comfortable in the uncomfortable. I think that's a great, great piece of advice for anyone. So, and I'm sure people will be able to grab as much as they can out of the, out of this episode. So really, really appreciate your time in, in talking to us. Yeah. Yeah. I also want to thank you for your time and your interest. We, we love it. Uh, Cameron does great work <laughs> behind the scenes. Yeah. He's, yeah, he really pu- pushes, pushes a bit far and beyond as to, you know, sourcing, some some quality guests such as yourself to have a chat to so it's you know it's it's really our pleasure to be able to share your story and what you're doing around the world we'll most definitely be watching uh the world championships but paris 2024 we will be looking for a certain name in the t64 100 and 200 meters and any (laughs) other events but there is most definitely that t64 uh female event we will be looking at at uh a certain name, hoping uh, that that comes up with a big gold medal around it. Unless she gets a race number. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully doesn't forget race number. Yeah, that was, that, that's something that we need to make sure, even on the day, I don't think, forget race number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think that will be, uh, will be better in Paris. I think that won't happen in Paris because I won't make that mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, we'll be rooting for you uh, and wish you all the best in the near future. And we'll, we'll certainly be looking out for you on the in the international stage. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. We appreciate you rating and reviewing the podcast, but most importantly, sharing it with people you think it will impact the most. Before we go, again, a massive thanks to our sponsor, the Sunco Spinners. The Sunco Spinners are a social wheelchair-based sporting club. They operate multiple programs for people of all ages and abilities in basketball, rugby, and more. Follow the Sunco Spinners on Facebook, Instagram, and find out more about them at sunkospinners.com.au. 